Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. You're uh, tuning in to another Hunt Talk podcast. And today I've got a great group of guys with me. I'm going to kind of go around the room here from left to right. I got Jeff Spazito from Sitka Gear and David Brinker from Sitka Gear. And then I got the producers of this podcast, 0.0, Giannis Patelis and Dan Doty are here. And we're here in beautiful Bozeman, Montana on this lovely day, wondering why we're not out fishing or scouting or hiking or whatever. Um, but we're going to do a podcast. And I did a thing on the website, my, my website being the Hunt Talk Forum. I put a thread out there that said, all right, I don't want to just know topics that people are interested in hearing. Ask me the specific question. And I cannot believe how many questions showed up. And I said, nothing is off limits. And some of, <laughs> some of them get a little more personal than I expected. But anyhow, the format of this is we're going to go out to the Hunt Talk Forum, and Jeff and David are going to select the questions that the, our uh, forum members have put out there. As your producer, I'm going to have you wait to do that. And first you're going to repeat the, the quote that you were saying right before we hit record. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was Dan, the producer. Was that the one about how if you own a lawnmower, a weed whacker, or any tools? Okay, so I got to put some context to this. Is Out on our forum, a lot of times guys are asking me, how do you get to hunt and fish so much? Well, Part of it is it goes back 26 years, and when you get married, you got to be thinking this stuff through, and you know <laughs> who you choose to get married to. But as a general rule, guys, if you own a chainsaw, if you have a wood stove, you own a weed whacker, a lawnmower, for every one of those devices, cross one week off your hunting and fishing schedule every year. <laughs> <laughs> and I told the guys this, and they looked at me like. I don't know if that's BS or if he's a genius. I think he might be a genius. I think we're now going to see an influx of uh, yard tools on Craigslist and Montauk members. All right. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff votes that I'm a genius. I don't know what the rest of the listeners will think. But, but really, I mean, you, the last thing, if you want to hunt, you don't want to be handy. How, how many guys you know who built their own house hunt a lot? <laughs> No, right. David's. He's sitting there. He's been thinking for three minutes now, trying to think of anyone he knows who's handy. No, I was just trying to think of the one uh, any time that I'd done a chore around the house, and I couldn't think of it. <laughs> well, I was trying to think, but about, I still don't get to hunt and fish. Uh, uh, I think quite the contrary. Yeah. You hunt much more than I do, and I'm always at your house fixing stuff. <laughs> there's the problem, Jeff. But the. the there's kind of this running joke among my friends and among people who follow the Hunt Talk Forum is my wife is way handier than I am. And when we were up in Alaska, we had a boat motor blow up on us up there. And I'm lucky that I grew up in northern Minnesota and my dad thought a junked out boat motor was a good investment. So what little bit of mechanical aptitude I have is heavily weighted towards outboard <laughs> motors. So we're up in Alaska, the motor breaks down, and my camera guys are looking at me like, uh-oh, this guy claims to know nothing, and uh, uh, to nothing about mechanics. So I'm like, all right, get out of the way, I'll fix this. And I can see the smile on their face, like, yeah, right. I had that thing running in like five minutes. And they're like, holy crap, he, he did fix that. Is that right? but I, an outboard they, genius. <laughs> yeah. They're in their mid-20s, they're in that age of getting married. I'm like, if you guys say anything to my wife... 
you're fired. <laughs> as far as she knows, I have no mechanical aptitude, and I want it to stay that way. Yeah. And if you guys want to hunt and fish as much as I do, I suggest you go and sell your tools on eBay or, or Craigslist right now. You just so. blew your cover. Is well, your- <laughs> I did, but... You know, Hopefully she doesn't listen to your podcast, huh? <laughs> she does. She knows. I mean, when you've been married 26 years like we have, it, and then there's the, you know, it's not just what your knowledge is. It's also your your behavior and your approach to fixing things, right? So she'll say, Randy, the dryer, the element in the dryer broke. And she's almost afraid to ask me because she knows I might be able to fix it, but I hate mechanical stuff so bad. I would rather, I, I'm trying to think... I would rather hot tar someone's roof in Phoenix for a month than to have to fix a dryer or something. <laughs> I mean, I hate mechanical stuff. And so when she calls me in there, I know what she's thinking. She's thinking, is it even worth asking him? So kind of what you got to do is you go in there, you take the back off the dryer, you know, and you cuss and swear a little bit, <laughs> kick it, make some noise, step on the dog maybe. And, <laughs> and the more you cuss, the more she's worried that this was a bad idea. Because at our house, the rule is, if God had meant for Randy to fix things, he wouldn't have invented the yellow pages. I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, that's the rule every hunter should live by. So I'll go in there, I'll kick and bang things. And if you can kind of scratch yourself or draw a little blood in the process, now you, you're invested. You, I mean, now she thinks, man, he's really giving it an effort. And so you kind of got to throw everything on the floor and say, ah, don't have what it needs to fix it. And you head on down to the ranch and home store. And, yeah, you buy some more tools and gadgets and doodads you need and make sure that there's ammunition being sold at that store. <laughs> because if you want to buy more ammo, what a better time than when your wife sent you to fix the dryer. <laughs> and so, you know, stop, get a Starbucks, a Dairy Queen along the way, and then you come home and you kind of like, we got your sleeves rolled up, man, I'm ready now. And you go in there and you tinker on a few things, swear a little more, and you seal it up and you... You hide the leftover parts because I never put anything back together without having a handful of parts. <laughs> and you bring her in for the big production, like, okay, honey, I think it's going to work. And it doesn't work. And by then, she's already called the repairman it, anyway, it, right? That's the whole <laughs> that's point. That's the Jeff, plan. Right there. That's the plan. And she's like, well, you should have just went hunting today. It would have been less expensive. Voila. Sign, see, I'm not as dumb as I look. And so, all you guys out there who are wondering how I fish and hunt as much as I do, there's a strategy to it. <laughs> well, I think that's a good lead into one of the questions I saw on the Hunt Talk forum that talked about uh, how you do get to do that and that your wife should probably be a guest on here. So would you ever consider bringing her on so we can get her side of the story? Oh, man. <laughs> My wife's name is Kim, and she's the most wonderful wife in the world. Uh, and the guys out on the forum, because my name on the forum is Big Finn. Uh, they call her Mrs. Finn. Uh, she's the most bashful person. Most people don't even know I'm married. I, I've lived in Bozeman for 26 years, and they'll see Kim and I out, and they're like, oh, that's your wife? Because she's like so low-key, so reserved. She wants nothing to do with it. So the odds of me getting her on the forum are about zero. <laughs> Not happening. But if we did... My career in politics, my career as a TV host, my career in a lot of things would be down the tubes. <laughs> She'd reveal all your secrets, huh? <laughs> she would. Or if you did this podcast back in my little hometown of Big Falls, Minnesota, and had my buddies sitting around, 
<laughs> no way. Every sponsor would pull. Well, word on the street gone. is she's a pretty serious, hardcore walleye fisherwoman, isn't she? Well, you should see her boat. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if any of you listeners have this problem, but if my wife doesn't go walleye fishing four days a week in the summer, I'm in trouble. And guys come over to the shop and they're like, "Nice boat, Randy! Wow!" I'm like, "I wish it was mine." I thought that was your boat. It's my wife. Oh, how about that? Oh yeah, it's her. <laughs> I got her name on the title. Everything. I mean, it makes a lot so. of sense. It's the cleanest, nicest looking thing in your shop. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. So, to whoever it is on Hunt Talk who said they want to have my wife on the podcast, I would love to do it. But you guys are going to have to bribe her. There's, <laughs> I, I mean, one time the camera guys were over at the house filming something, and she stuck her head out the, the door and said, hey, so-and-so's on the phone. And they turned the cameras towards her. She ducked in the house, and then she's sending me text messages while I'm just out in the yard. They better not have recorded that. You better tell them, I want that tape. I want to delete that. So that's the extent of how bashful or, or reserved she is. But well, she that's all right. We'll make it happen. She's going to come. Maybe on. you, David and Jeff, maybe you guys can, but I we could try. I so don't do you, I'm think curious, so. Randy, if you, uh, besides walleye fishing, if there's any other uh, fishing and hunting activities she does with you, or she's strictly a walleye fisherwoman. <sighs> well, it's, it's kind of funny. That's how we ended up in Bozeman, Montana when we got married. I'm a CPA in my other life. So we got married in tax season, February. I'm like, honey, we aren't doing a honeymoon till May, so think about what you want to do. She says, I want to go fishing for two weeks. So we came around the West, specifically Montana. We stayed here in Bozeman for a week of that two-week honeymoon, and the fishing was fantastic. Oh, it's, it's, the fishing's no good now, though. Don't come here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as we're leaving, she said, I'm moving here. You coming with? That's it? I, uh, it was like that. So, And when we <clears throat> first got married and then our son was born, she would hunt with me. I mean, she shot a lot of whitetails. She loves bird hunting. Cool. Um, but uh, then when my son got of hunting age, she's like, well, you got a hunting partner now. When he's gone, I'll get back into it. She's not got back into it. Yeah, he's gone now, right? Yeah, he's, he's off to college. But, you know, one of the things about fishing with her, she is like, and I don't know if this is women in general. Maybe your wives are the same way, but she is so practical and pragmatic about hunting and fishing is about acquisition of food. That's <laughs> what it is. We go walleye fishing and the limit's five. When you put the fifth walleye or two limits, the tenth walleye in the live well, that's it. You're done. No more cruising the lake and having no. a beer. <laughs> huh? You're, you are done. We're, we got our fish. Let's go. We're not going to sit and torture these things. Hold on, honey. Just wait a second here. I mean, it's not the only reason I'm here, right? But I don't know. Is that how you, your wives? I mean, do they hunt fish? Uh, my my wife is. Uh, I'm taking her for her first hunt this year, so we'll find out what kind, how she is when what? in the woods. So we're going. Uh, we're going to go on an antelope hunt in Wyoming. So cool. I'm really excited about it. She's been uh, shooting a bow. Just got a bow. Gosh, I don't know. A couple months ago, and she's uh-huh. been shooting it really well. Which has been an interesting experience in its own because I come home from work now and she's out on the deck shooting her bow without me. And I'm like, hey, that's kind of my activity. But now I'm watching the kids while she shoots. So I might be second guessing my decision to get her into it. You should have thought about that before. I feel like I got that advice from somebody. But uh, we're we're both really excited about it. And she's uh, she's now doing hunter safety and doing the whole whole thing. So. Cool. It'll be interesting to see once she uh, experiences experiences what hunting's like if. how that how that changes her perspective on what I do because yeah. I think she has a vision of where I am for the ten days uh-huh. trips that I go on and uh, it might not be 
reality. As glamorous as she catches <laughs> yeah. it. She'll probably go out and kill something on her first day of the hunt and be like, I don't understand what you're doing the right. whole time. That, Why? You never come home with anything. <laughs> That's what happened with my wife. The first time I ever took her hunting, she shot a, she shot a nice mature four-point buck, blacktail buck out in Oregon uh, the first afternoon I took her. And she's like, what's so hard about this? This is like a 350-yard <laughs> shot. Uh, uh, you know, uh, hammered it both shoulders and and uh, no, we have too many kids for her to hunt for right. right now. She, you guys got three. Yeah, right, we got David? a little herd of them. Um, we have three, and uh, she uh, she wants to get back into it. When we first started dating, she'd come out with me quite a bit. And yeah. in fact, I killed a uh, a bull uh, bull elk with my bow one night with her sitting right next to my side. That was pretty cool. Called yeah. him into twenty yards and wow, and shot him. But uh, she, ever since we had kids, she's been pretty busy. But she wants to get back out. She's been shooting her bow with with Jeff's wife a little bit, and and. Um, so our plan is next year when we don't have a newborn, mm-hmm. she'll get back out. Yeah. But right now she's pretty tied up. Assuming you don't Ooh. have a newborn next year, <laughs> <laughs> you know the plan is not that. <laughs> when my wife decided she wanted to come hunting with me, it really changed my hunting. And I and a lot of guys are probably saying, "Oh yeah, mine too." But it changed my hunting in a very positive way. Um, the, in that she really focused me on food. I, I mean, and my wife is the type that. If she thought there was one one thousandth of a t- percent chance she is not going to kill that animal right in its tracks, she won't shoot. Yeah, I don't care if it's ten yards away. Yeah, and I came to respect her approach to it. Of this is way more important to me than just being out here shooting. And I, I think that kind of started me on this path of you know what. This appreciation for wildlife is it, it started growing deeper right about that time, mm-hmm. and she will roll her eyes like, "Oh no, I didn't have any influence on you." <laughs> really, she did, and that I could I could see that with my wife already just from conversations with her of having that polar opposite philosophy of a trophy hunter, and the fact that that she really loves to eat elk meat, and I convinced her to go on this antelope hunt, but she was really when we first saw her talking about her getting a hunting license and hunting. She wasn't interested in hunting anything but elk because that's what she wanted to eat. She had no desire to kill anything else. Yeah, which is uh, which is quite a bit different than than a lot of hunters who right. who uh, who are interested in hanging things on the wall. So yeah. I, I could see how that'd be a good balance and and uh, you know not not necessarily a shift in philosophy, but good uh, a good balancing point. Right. Yeah, I, I'm having a hard time getting my wife to buy an elk tag this year because she's well. At least we hope I kill one this year. And she says if I do kill one, then there's no reason for her to even go out. And I'm yeah. like, well, what do you mean? I, I still want to take you out. You know, right. we can we can give the meat the meat away to the family or whatever. We'll we'll figure out something. And she she says, nope. If if we already have one in the freezer, there's absolutely no reason for me to go. I'd rather just you know do my normal thing. Okay. Well, with that little pack of yours, you might need three elk in the freezer. Yeah. That's my argument. As they get older, <laughs> you need to stockpile for the future. Those kids are pretty young now, but soon. Giannis pipes in because you got two at home, right? Yeah, now? I've got an almost four and an almost two. And, you know, the four of us, we can smoke two elk, no problem. And that was last year. So, right. And David's got three that are underage. Yeah, we went but. through an elk, a whitetail, and... Maybe an elk and two whitetails last year, pretty swiftly. And, and you, you know? your kids are all, all three of them are under four years old, right? right. Yeah, so four, two, and le- right less than a year. Dude, the last one was born right in the middle of the elk rut, you which is awesome. Start sleeping planning. on the couch, my friend. Yeah, I already do, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> I spent half the time there. You know that, <laughs> Jeff. Your kid. I have two daughters. Uh, two daughters as well. One will be six in October, and one just turned two in May. So. Okay. And Dan, age. Nope. Dan, Dan, he's still uh, Dan's still living the dream. Yeah, and, and Randy, <laughs> I'm 
I'm the old fart here. I'm the only gray-haired guy here. My son's 25. Wow. And see, you're you're right now. You're you got. I gotta start asking questions. You're living what I'm looking forward to now. <laughs> when my kids get older, and move out. <laughs> but you, but you know what? When your kids leave, and this was funny when my son went off to college. Everyone in our family said, "Oh, Kim is gonna just she's gonna fall apart." Because she was kind of the hovering mother. I'll tell you what. I was the lost dog. I, I walked around the house moping, and one day she said it. She said, do we have to rent a teenager for you to go hunting with you this year? It, it just it became so much a part of why I hunted. Yeah. I could, what, was just to be with him and, and see, watch him grow and learn. And, yeah. and hunting, you, you fail at a lot of things, and then when you finally have success, it builds you confidence that doesn't just translate to hunting. It translates to a whole lot of other things right. in your life. And so when you're watching your own kid go through that and then they have success, it's like there's nothing I'm ever going to do in my own hunting that is going to compare to watching yeah. my child. I, I can already tell. I mean, none of my kids are old enough to really get out there too much now. But I, I can remember when I was, you know, my dad was taking me, he was carrying me on his back when I could, could barely crawl, you know, and how excited he got, like, when I shot a doe as opposed yeah. to when he shoots a big six, like, the passion that he put into that, he couldn't care less if he ever shot another thing in his life. It was way more excited to see me kill a rabbit or a you know a squirrel or whatever it was back in the day that that you know that he watched me hunt. And so like now looking at my daughter and my sons, I can't wait for that. And I can already see the the importance level of my success just going down. And like I want to see them do something. Right. Like it, it doesn't matter. You know, I've I've done it. I, yeah, and that, I think that's just endemic to the hunting world. I, well, you're, what you're saying there, David, same with my dad. He carried me on his back rough grouse hunting in northern Minnesota, and he couldn't have cared less, I think, if he shot anything. He just wanted me out there enjoying and, and being part of the culture of it. So I can't wait till my daughter's old enough to take him hunting. Yeah. We, have a, we have a pro staffer at Sick of Gear, Corey Jacobson, who his youngest son is just of hunting age. And uh, you know Corey, yeah. he's he's an amazing great hunter, guy. great elk caller. Um, but his son had a great hunting season last year, and we've shared some of the pictures and posts on our website. And they may have got they must have gotten more traction than just about anything else we could post about you know how this young kid's out in the field and having success hunting. And they're just cool stories. And have you seen the film they made about that hunt yet? I've not seen the film yet. There's a film coming out on um, <laughs> it'll be on this year's hunting film tour. Yeah, and it's it's that his his son's elk hunt. Oh, and cool. I, I I watched the trailer for it, and it's I mean it's incredible i mean it's my it's already my favorite film on the tour cool well this is a long we're we're already way off yeah we should pick a question here but i have i already have one oh david all right david's been reading this ties right into what we're talking about okay uh the the question on your forum was or something around youth hunting like what do you think do you think that uh the industry is doing enough to promote youth hunting or what do you think could be done more of to to get more kids out in the field Boy, that's in a lot of ways a loaded question because in Montana here in the mid-90s, about five of us tried to get our elk. At the time, you had to draw a cow tag. Um, And we said, you know what, for kids under whatever age, we can't remember what it was, we should let them, it should be an either sex tag for them. I could not believe how many pissed off old farts came out of the woods and said, well, that's not how it was when I grew up. So what? So for me, if all my TV show was about or all my hunting experiences were about just getting kids out there to have a positive experience, that I would do it. Do I think we're doing enough? 
I think we're doing a lot. You know, one is enough. Enough. I mean, you guys have younger kids than I do, and I I just looked at the competing pressures when my son was going through that eight to ten year old range fifteen years ago, and even then there was so much competition for his time, whether it was karate or hockey or football or every scouts, everything else, and those are all fun and important. But it seems like now I'm gonna age myself. <laughs> when I grew up. If you played football, you played football from middle of August to the end of October. And if you played basketball, you played it in the winter. If you did track, you did it in the spring. And in the summer, it wasn't like, oh, you got to go to basketball camp or you got to go to this camp or that camp. No, it's like these kids are just, if you're going to do anything, mom and dad are there just pushing them, pushing them, pushing them. So yeah. I, I don't know how, that's an overall societal thing. And I think because we're hunters, we try to look at it through the eyes of hunters yeah. and say, oh, we're losing hunters because of that. But yeah. I, I'm a firm believer that uh, a lot of the responsibility rests in the hands of the parents. You yeah. know, when I was growing up, my, my da- I remember pretty clearly my dad talking to me about football, you know, and he's like, you can, you're more than welcome to play football. All my friends played football. And he's, I'm like, I don't want to play football. I want to go elk hunting. <laughs> He's like, that's what I was hoping to hear. But it's your t- totally your choice. But he, I think, and so this last weekend, I was at a bow shoot down by down by Ennis, a private bow shoot down there, and I, it was really fun. I got to take my daughter camping for a night and take her out shooting bows on the 3D course, and I, I got to observe a lot of dads with their sons and daughters and, and moms as well. And uh, my takeaway was, wow, I am failing as a parent like i need to get my kids out more and more i mean i do a lot with my kids but it the reality is it takes a lot of effort we all have very busy lives and if you're not willing to put the effort out to stick them on your back or like um you know sacrifice a deer or an elk or a, a a day where you could self you know selfishly go do something then you know the the chances of them wanting to do it are, are lower but i I'm, i think you know if, if you put that effort in and get them out there as much as possible and give them the choice to enjoy it. It's not about pushing them to do it. It's just like, hey, check out the outdoors. It's fun. You know, go catch a frog. Go go fling an arrow. Um, yeah. I think, so that's that's kind of that's kind of my stance on it. It's just put in that extra effort. I know that I need to do a better job of it um, because, I mean, it, it's all, it's there's a lot available if you, if, if you want to go take it. I mean, it's yeah, not that I hard to like- get a kid out. I feel like as a hunting industry, we, we've done collectively a good job about creating programs and opportunities that, that are focused on youth and engagement and giving kids opportunities. But I question myself personally on that because I'm so, because we're lucky to live in a place like Montana and, and work in an industry where we're so involved. Is, is, is that, are those opportunities that visible or that well known for kids who don't grow up in a situation like we grew up or our kids are being raised who aren't, who aren't involved in the hunting industry or who don't live close to public lands in the city. And that's where, where I think things like archery and schools program have been really cool. And I get excited to see those programs grow. Um, but from my personal perspective, I think I'd answer, yeah, I think we do a lot for youth, but then I put myself in the shoe of somebody who isn't living in the same, you know, same realm or world that, that I am. And, and I think maybe, maybe we could definitely do a better job or make things more broad. What are some of the local like programs for for youth around here? Is or does Montana have some state programs? Or I think if you went to and I'm going to kind of make it rural versus urban suburban. I think in rural places like Montana, you have scouts, you have 4-H, you have local rod and gun clubs. Jeff, you talked about uh, archery in the schools program. Yeah. Uh, 
the Elk Foundation, they have a, a youth program. The Ducks Unlimited have a program called Green Wings. Turkeys have their Jake's program. I think pretty much every group has something like that. Uh, but we see it more out here in the rural world, mm-hmm. if you want to call a county of 60,000 people rural, than maybe what you'd see in a more urban area and right. just access to it and the, the mm-hmm. logistics of what it takes for a parent. If you were living even in, let's say, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it's on the north side of the Twin Cities, mom or dad's got to bring a kid out there. And it's just different than, at least when I grew up. That's a really good point. One thing that struck me is when my son was a kid, I don't know what he was, 12, 14, somewhere in that. His birthday's May 18th, and every May for his birthday, the weekend before, we would, uh, as many of his buddies as I could fit in the pickup truck, we would haul the boat over to Tongue River Reservoir over on the border of Montana and Wyoming and catch crappies. Because it's, it, it's so ridiculous, crappie fishing there in, in mid-May. You can't not catch a fish. <laughs> it, you, you, I, oh, I bet you I could prove you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, David. I might take you on that. <laughs> Anyhow, we'd usually have four or five of these young kids in the truck. And I'm thinking, okay, they're all from Montana, all from Bozeman. Hardly any of them had ever camped out. Uh, when well, I told Matthew, hey, go start the fire, all the other kids stood back like, oh, my goodness, he's going to start a fire. Like, he's <laughs> going to blow something up. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. I live in Montana, and these kids are growing up. They, they'd never camped out, most of them. I let them pee. I let them pee on the fire that night, <laughs> and they giggled and laughed. They didn't know that if you peed on the fire, it'd smoke the way it does. <laughs> I mean, the women less than probably haven't peed on a fire, but so it was. That really registered with me yeah. that you know what? Maybe I take it for granted that every family has this outdoor connection, like I yeah. grew up with, and that totally. I'm trying to pass on, and. uh Anyhow, that, that's a little bit of a tangent to that question that was asked, David. But I, I think getting back to your point, if you just get kids outside and you get them in the frog pond or you get them out on the trail somewhere, they're going to see grasshoppers and mice and, and maybe they'll see a hawk or an owl or a deer or whatever. Just that starts mm-hmm. building that interest level. And, mm-hmm. and the more they know, the more confident they are in their understanding of it and the more they probably want to know. So I, got, well, I got a question for you, kind of tying into that, Randy, on your opinion. Semi-controversial, but I know it's debated. Uh-oh. Not controversial, but <laughs> debated maybe yeah. uh, across states. Is, is I always hear the different talk in different states as if the what the age, youth age limit for hunting should be. What, what are your thoughts on that? We just had it here in the Montana legislature this year, and it passed to, to change the, the lower age to lower it and allow a kind of a mentor apprenticeship type program. And there's some people who feel that that's not good. Um, And in Montana, we did not allow it for elk hunting. Um, And the rationale there being that elk hunting is very physical. It's tough. It's, you know, you're usually shooting larger caliber rifles. There's a lot of things that make it a little more difficult for a 10-year-old than a 14-year-old. Personally... I, I don't have a problem with it, but I, I also don't want people to think that it's the state's job to create hunters and to get kids involved in hunting. It's not the state of Montana or the state of Kansas or the state of Texas or the state of Georgia to get your kids into hunting. 
yeah, we don't want to have artificial hurdle, hurdles that make it harder, but that really falls on the parent. And some yeah. people say, well, the kids can't make ethical or, or proper decisions about what's right and what's wrong at that age and, uh, you know, whatever. Well, they're watching their parents, and they're going to learn from their parents right. about that stuff, whether they're 10 years old or they're 16 years old. Right. So good mentors make good hunters. Right. So what age did they get changed to? <clears throat> uh, I went from 10 down to, I think it's, or from 12 in Montana. I think now this, and I should know this, Dan, but I don't. Uh, I think it went down to age 10. You can do small game and deer, um, mm-hmm. but not elk. And any of the, the really premier limited permits, like moose, goat, and sheep, they can't apply for. But yeah, so, but otherwise it's twelve for yeah. everything else <clears throat> in Montana. Wow. Some states don't have a limit, like New Mexico. As long as you can pass hunter ed, I feel like I was nine go. where I grew up, was it? which okay. I think was a good age. Yeah. Uh, but again, you're totally right with the mentorship. I mean, nine years old, I don't think I was responsible enough to go hunting on my own obviously understand the rules but it was a good age for me to be able to to have a hunting license and a tag in my pocket and learn to learn with uh you know with it was my grandfather i was actually the one who who got me hunting but uh and i actually never killed my first year till i was 14 so it's kind of like a mentorship i yeah. had you know three three years of uh four years of experience with with a license but without actually pulling the trigger yeah, yeah. and i mean even at 12 years old you i mean to think that i mean i i remember doing it but um you know, to think that a, you can just set a 12-year-old out in the woods with a 7mm out into the mountains of Montana and he's going to go kill an elk and pack it up, that's kind of foolish too. Yeah. So, I mean, whether they're 10 or they're 12, they need the parent there or whoever their, their mentor is to make sure they're being safe, to make sure they're being ethical, to make sure that they're learning the proper – I mean, I, I think it's great that they lower it. Personally, I think it's great that they lower it. That's two years less that I have to wait to get my kids <laughs> out there. Yeah. But um, to go back on one point that we were talking about earlier about – like um, my theory is, is one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons that 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 we hunt is to spend time in the outdoors, yep. right? Um, and so, if you can create that connection and that that passion for the outdoors early, and I don't know if it necessarily may, and it may later in your kid's life, it may not be that they hunt, but at least they respect the outdoors and they love going camping and you know sleeping on the stars, da da da. da. Um, by going out and letting them net frogs and digging the dirt and doing all that stuff put the ipad away for a full day and turn spongebob or dora or whatever (laughs) maybe a full year yeah maybe so it was very interesting the other day when i took my my daughter so my daughter loves the ipad i don't you know they all do for whatever reason um but this whole last weekend i i kept it away from her and she didn't watch a show either but what i noticed was that she forgets about it if she's outside like if she's outside doing stuff she won't. She but if she's stuck inside, you know, if we're all link, lounging on the couch, then that's that's the problem. It's just yeah. a matter of just putting the effort in to get outside and creating that connection to the outdoors. Because what I keep hearing from people once they're grown up is, gosh, my best memories growing up were going camping with my parents or going yeah. hunting with my dad or whatever. I hear it over and over, and I say the same things. And so I, I don't know. Some it, it may end up that they'd be a hunter, and it may not. But at least they have a passion and respect for the outdoors, so they can you know defend hunters or at least have that respect for it and educate people you know later in life that's kind yeah, of my i think that's on. a good point too is we naturally always when we talk about hunting think about you know our minds go to killing animals right and obviously probably all of us listeners know that there's much more to it than that and i think that's one thing that uh, that's important for kids to learn when they start talking about hunting and the experience in the outdoors is really what that means beyond 
beyond killing an animal. It's it's what hunters do for conservation. It's what being outside and, and what, you know, our forefathers have done to give us these public land accesses in these spots and how all that ties together. And I think that's really important um, that, that, you know, when parents maybe aren't necessarily hunters and they think about, oh, my kids should get involved in a hunting activity, they probably just naturally overlook all that other stuff and think, well, I don't need my animal, my kid out killing animals, you know? Right. But it's about learning about biology and conservation and, and wildlife yeah. and uh and that's really important, I think, overlooked sometimes. Yeah. At what age do you think that hunters in their path start to become trophy hunters? Do you think did you did you if you are a trophy hunter or you know trophy hunters, do you think they just came out at the age ten or twelve I, and, and I had like that? I saw feeling? something online the other day that was kind of comical. But but it was actually kind of serious too. But and I can't remember exactly how it went. But it was like the path of a of a hunter as as it became more experienced and it, and it kind of tied. I can't remember it specifically, but it'd be worth looking up because it kind of tied into that how you how you grow as a hunter and and you start and you're just fascinated with with killing animals or, or whatever it is and and you you want to shoot and fill as many tags as you have. And then you get to a point where you're being selective and and then you get to a point where you're a trophy hunter and then you get to a point kind of like we're talking about where. Or you don't even care anymore. You just want to go out in the field and see a bugling just bull, and you observe don't observe nature. Yeah, yeah, you don't even. You don't even. It's not even about notching a tag anymore. And it's kind of kind of interesting. And someone actually wrote a paper on that, uh, like in the '90s, and, and it was called "The Five Phases of a Hunter" or something like that. And it's exactly what you said, Jeff. You're kind of you go through these phases. And Dan, to answer your question, I don't know if that research ever identified an age. I think part of it is how you are brought to hunting. Um, and, and all I can do is use my experiences. You know, when I grew up, hunting was about food acquisition. You know, my grandpa shot a Boone and Crockett whitetail in Minnesota, a huge seven by seven. When you see pictures of it, people just fall over. Grandpa, what did you do with that rack? I threw it out in the dump. What the hell was I going to do? I wasn't going to drag it around <laughs> everywhere. So there, there was, you know, this was 1974. I'm 10 years old. There's no concept of trophy hunting at that time. So I come to hunting with almost zero, quote-unquote, trophy hunting background. My son, I, I think, somewhat carries through with that in that for him, hunting is a large part about his connection to food. I mean, Dan and Giannis here, they help produce the Meat Eater Show, which you guys do a lot of talk about hunting and food. And... That's where my son's at in hunting at this point. He's 25 years old, and it's it's about being outdoors, being with his family and friends, and acquiring food. So I I think if I would have brought him into the hunting world where, oh, don't shoot that, it's not big enough, or acting disappointed if he shot something, I, I wanted him to shoot something bigger, then I think it would have changed the, the glass or the lens through which he views hunting and how he would have evolved through those five steps or five. Right. So what are those five yeah, exactly? I, uh, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I can look it up. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I should know. It, it's kind of like a bell curve where you, you know, it's, it's all about just being there and shooting, and then it's about filling tags, and yeah. then it's about bigger and then it becomes trophy hunting and then the last phase is something about uh where you put your own restrictions on your own self to get more out mm-hmm. of the hunting uh, activity but yeah, that's where a lot of guys i think start picking up traditional hunting <laughs> which is a yeah. whole other topic about why guys shoot oh, yeah. yeah shoot traditional bows one which, one, th- one thing i was going to say about this trophy thing is um you know i think if you take a look at like take a snapshot of the last 50 75 years consumption of media has changed so much like so you know in fred bear's day 
you know, Fred Bear was going out. I mean, he he loved it if he killed a big animal, but it wasn't what it was all about. But and the access to that content was pretty low. Today, kids can flip on the Outdoor Channel, and that's what they know. They know they know you know uh, that. Uh, the type of hunting where people are watching the same deer all year round, they name them, they get, they know exactly what their G twos and their G threes are. And, you know, it, so it's, 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 I would say it's a broader range of influence. The type of influences that are available today, they actually uh, definitely breed more trophy hunters than any other time in the past. Um, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. I just, cause when I was growing up before out there, the, the television, um, I grew up very similar to Randy. My dad, was a very well respected hunter in the area, and he definitely was probably in his trophy hunting phase then. But he still um, tried to influence me not to be like that. He, you know, tried to show me that it's you know it's more important than that. You know, you take a ethical, uh, ethically take an animal doesn't matter how big it is, eat the meat, you know, be respectful, all that stuff. Um, but I just feel like the world's changed so much, and it's so easy to access that trophy hunting content that. Um, you know, there's just, there's just more of it. And, and, I, and by the way, I mean, I, th- I think that some of it's totally healthy. I mean, taking mature animals and all that stuff. Um, that's an interesting concept that you mentioned, I think would be a really interesting case study is, is how you were raised is it, or how you're brought into hunting. Even if, if you're an adult or a, or a child, how that influences the type of hunter you become. Cause, cause I think you could see how that could definitely have an impact on on who you are, I don't know. I, I mean, I was right. raised by my grandfather. Got me into hunting, and it was totally a social camaraderie, family thing. For oh, him. really? Yeah, and it was all about get the family together, and and uh, you know, we all go hunting together. It's a big trip, and and now I kind of see how that has a little influence on how I hunt. Still, I mean, I do plenty of hunting by myself or or whatnot, but most of the time, I, I'm more excited to go hunting with buddies than than I am any other type of hunting. If we can get a group of guys together and go to deer camp, that's what. That totally gets me excited, which I think might have been influenced by how I was kind of brought into it. Yeah, and the 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 absolutely agree with you, Jeff. And the other thing I was thinking about is um, sort of the so along with technology, uh, you know, making technology better and better every year between what what we wear, what we shoot, what, all that stuff. You have to, especially if you're a competitive person. You have you like challenge, right? It's one right. of the reasons you go out in the woods is because you feel challenged. If it was easy, we probably less of us would do it. Right. Um, so if if your equipment makes it a little bit easier, then you want more challenge. And how do you get more challenge? Well, you you, you set restrictions upon yourself. I'm not going to shoot anything besides a 370 bull or above. Right. You know, and that's just like saying, you know, I'm going to. Last year I did a, a 5K, but this year, you know what? I'm going to do a marathon. Yeah, and I'm not satisfied with five Ks anymore. You, you, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And and now it's just it's a whole lot easier to get information, mm-hmm. like you're saying, David, about the trophy hunting idea. And and I'm not going to sit here on a high pedestal because I'll tell you right now that if there are two bulls standing there, and one's a big old six point and one's a little raghorn, I'm shooting the six point. Your wife might not, though. I <laughs> know. My wife would shoot the raghorn. <laughs> I'm going to shoot the big six point. And does that make me a trophy hunter? Maybe it does. I, I don't know. And, and, you know, I know some guys who say they're trophy hunters, but they are so far along that phase of just wanting to hunt to be out there that I wonder if they put this ridiculously high expectation on what they're going to fill their tag with just because they know they're never going to meet that <laughs> expectation and it allows them to hunt all season. 
I, I, actually, there's some truth. <laughs> yeah, we to talked that. to a guy the other day who had haunted the strip in Arizona for mule deer twice in his lifetime. And he's haunted every single day of both those seasons. Never pulled a trigger. And he's as happy as a clam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm halfway there. <laughs> I had the Arizona strip tag in 2007, and that tag's still sitting on my desk. Here's a question for you off the forum, speaking of tags. So today uh, is just uh, ironic that they released the Montana tags. Right. And uh, one of your uh, forum followers said, when will I draw a moose goat or sheep tag? You probably can't answer that for him, but did you draw anything? I didn't draw anything. But I'm I'm not going to complain because guys on the forum are like, is Newberg putting gold or cash in those <laughs> envelopes or what's the deal because i luck out and you i do have pretty good luck with drawing do. tags don't you the, the, well, that's my, maybe it's not luck there may be a portion of luck but there's always a little bit of luck but what do they say luck is the intersection of opportunity and hard work yeah in the off season if someone came to my my randy room right now which is the upstairs office where my wife says go to your room it's called the randy room <laughs> It's there's you couldn't tell what color the carpet is because it's all mapped spread out, and I've got this big whiteboard, and I got to end up with ten to twelve tags a year to film this TV show. So, for me, I I'm more than willing to accept what I'd call a middle of the road tag. I don't need a glory tag because I'm going on a lot of hunts every year. Whereas if I some guy is like, look. One hunt a year is enough for me out of state. Well, he's probably going to apply for really difficult to draw tags. So that's so. That, that leads me to another question, Randy. If you're, uh, <laughs> Jeff's you're, full of questions uh, today. Well, the forum has lots of questions here that I thought were really interesting. I want to know the answer too. <laughs> <laughs> but your show, your format, your show is different in that that you aren't going and buying guided hunts, right? That you're doing you're doing public land hunts and do it yourself. Have you ever had a season film in your show where you didn't have enough hunts because you didn't draw any tags? Yeah. What, what happened there? What did you do? I get on the phone and say, hey, Jeff, hey, David, did you guys <laughs> did you draw, draw any tags? And the answer is, no, of course not, we didn't. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So I, I've had that problem before. Yeah. Um, and it's just, when you decide you're going to film a show that is all public land, all self-guided, you really are at the mercy of where you can get tags. It just, you know, it's not like I live in... I don't know, somewhere down south where whitetails are like rabbits and I can go buy six tags and film six whitetail hunts. I just, I can't do that. So I've got some fallbacks. I mean, I'm lucky I live in Montana. Hey, so we I, can't do a lot of stuff in Montana over the right. counter, though. So I, I do a general over-the-counter tag for elk in Colorado just about every year. Um, the Alaska bear hunt that I do is close. I mean... Last year, Dan and Giannis went up there with me, and we <laughs> we sat in a tent in the rain for six days. But that, <laughs> That's that was, an over-the-counter tag, That was tag a leftover too? tag. Leftover, right? I'm going to Alaska this year and doing Sitka Blacktail. That's an over-the-counter tag. Yeah. Um, my Montana deer hunt this year is over-the-counter. And, and he, people say, well, it's over-the-counter for you because you live in Montana. Well, right now, Montana, we've got like 2,000 leftover deer yeah. and elk tags. So. If someone's listening right now, you can go to the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks website, and you can come elk or deer hunting in Montana this year. Yeah, my father-in-law's come every year for the last three or four years over-the-counter as non-resident. I I count that as an over-the-counter tag. My Colorado deer will be over-the-counter. My Colorado or my Colorado elk. Well, my Colorado deer tag takes one to two points, so I can do it every second or third year. Yeah, David. I'm raising my hand. Yeah. Could you riddle me how that would be considered not over-the-counter? What's that? 
But like you said, people can some well, people it's leftover tag technically because they're because you have to put in for the draw. If they're and if they sell it. out okay. during the draw, either it's yeah, not over there. Okay, so fair enough. I mean, sometimes people get pretty technical about that. Yeah. Um, so every year, probably five to six of our hunts are over the counter tags or general tags, or you know, takes one to two points to draw the tag. And that that still leaves a gap of all right. Now I got five or six more I got to find, and you just, as my Fair one out. friend says, I carpet bomb the West with applications. And <laughs> what's what's uh what's your dream hunt? What's your top three bucket lists? Oh. That was on the that's the second to last question in your forum right now. Yeah, well, this is where. That's a hard one to answer, David. I'm going to say if you told me, Randy, you can have any tag in the world right now. Just because I've helped a friend do it before and it's so spectacular, I would give anything to hunt bighorn sheep in my home state of Montana. Other than that, if you would give me another archery pronghorn tag in Arizona like I had in 2011, that's that would be my next dream hunt. And a little different spin on that question then. Here's one on your forum. What If you can only hunt one animal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Hold on, I have a question for tobacco. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so if you if you drew one of those tags yeah. that you would love so much, and you had the opportunity to uh, to give that to your son and go with him, would you do that? Oh, I'd give it to him. Yeah. I mean, you'd prefer to do that. I, I would, yeah. um, just because I would want. In fact, if I could just tag along with somebody on those hunts, it would be. Spectacular. Even Bighorn in Montana. Yeah. So and, you'd give me the Bighorn tag if you drew it. Uh, that's <laughs> what I'm getting. That's, that's what I'm gathering here. No, we get this in writing. How many points do you have? Oh, gosh. All right. So I'm, I'm probably getting out on a limb here. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Dan set me up on that one. What you're saying so, is you'd give it back to the state of Montana right, if yeah, you drew so, it. Sure, I would. Yeah. Um, but no, would I give it to my son? I, I certainly would do that. Um, but I, for me, it's not so much the species itself as it is the total story of the species. And the reason that sheep right now intrigues me so much is because everyone has the impression in Montana that we all is well in the world of wild sheep in Montana. And nothing could be further from the truth. Just because we litter the Boone and Crockett record book, I think in the last what was it, 20 years, or since time began, Montana has over 700 Boone and Crockett sheep entries. The next state doesn't even have 100. Uh, So we raise ridiculous quality of sheep here. But this year, we gave away way fewer ram tags than we did 10 years ago. Because disease is hitting all of our herds here. We, and some of the listeners who don't live near bighorn sheep probably don't get this connection, but you guys do because you do a lot of stuff with the Wild Sheep Foundation. Domestic sheep and goat carry this pneumonia that, that is contracted easily by wild sheep and they have no, no mechanism, no biological resistance to it. And so, We've lost the herd over in Rock Creek. We've now had uh, a herd down in the Bitterroot that we lost. We lost a herd up on the Rocky Mountain front. We're losing a herd down in southwest Montana. We we lost the Elkhorn herd. 
we there's an unlimited unit where you could just apply and be guaranteed the sheep tag on the northern boundary of Yellowstone Park near Gardner, Montana. That closed this year because some ass clown went and brought a bunch of domestic sheep in there, even though he knows that is wintering ground for elk or for for sheep. But it's private land, so you, you can't tell him what he can or can't do on his private land. But he knew that would happen. He was mad at the agency, so he said, I'll show you. So here we are in Montana, supposedly the promised land of wild sheep. And it is spectacular in the herds that are disease-free. But every time you open the newspaper, it seems like every six months, so we're going to lose this herd. We're going to lose that herd. Well... You can't continue that way. And we have a legislature that will not let our department go and transplant, relocate, or augment these herds. So I, I think one of, the, one of the forum questions was, when do you think bighorn sheep hunting is going to be a thing of the past? And quite honestly, I'm worried about that. And maybe that's part of what drives me when you ask the question of what my dream hunt is. I'm afraid that... Wild rams in Montana are going to all die of disease before I ever draw the tag. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit more on why the legislation won't, is so opposed to letting transplants or, or her augmentation happen? I don't really know much about it. I feel like I should know more. Oh, man, I'm going to try to do this without getting mad. <laughs> uh, as you guys I know, know from experience, just, to, just to thinking out loud, that just uh, the first state that comes to mind is Nevada. I feel like I'm always reading about them doing transplants and, yep. and uh, for you know, like yep. tons of conservation work around sheep in, yep. in those states. And yep. I, so I'm I curious would, what the difference is. I wish I could tell you a biological reason for their opposition, Jeff. They've not provided one. It's purely an ideological, philosophical, we don't like wild sheep and we certainly don't like your state agency that manages wildlife, so we're going to give you guys the rough ride. It's that simple. And I'm sure this forum is going to get lit up or I'm going to get lit up by legislators. (laughs) But the last two legislative sessions, us hunters have been there advocating for wild sheep. And you look across the aisle of who's there opposing this, and it's the same group. It's, it's just frustrating. So I, that, that's probably a, a big reason why sheep is so high on my list. And if I go to my grave and never hunt sheep, it's not going to be the end of the world. Can you break all that last stuff down a little bit? I, that confused me a little bit. So who's opposing it and – Oh, who, who, and what are they opposing? So, so, I think just break it down a little bit for okay. the viewers. Yeah, and this is, I've been warned about this. Randy, you, you sometimes blow through this stuff, assuming everybody's spent the last 20 years in the legislatures fighting the stuff <laughs> like you have. And, and uh, so I apologize for that. But So <clears throat> we have legislators who say, we want to make it harder to transplant sheep in Montana. We want to make it harder for this. So the, your state agency has to go through a million hoops that they know you're never going to be able to clear every one of those hoops. And so you go there, and we hunters say, no, this, this is impossible. We, we can't meet these criteria. And then you have certain people in the sheep industry, the domestic sheep industry, and they're lobbyists more than them themselves. Because you talk to the individual producers, they're usually great people. But their lobbyist groups are there saying, that's what we want. We, we don't want to have to change our operations for the sake of wild sheep. And, and is there, in this, in this scenario, is there a negative impact on the sheep farmers? 
because I, I kind of I grew up in a cattle ranching family, so mm-hmm. I kind of sympathize for the farmers and the ranchers that are just trying to make a living right. too. And there's yep. got to be a balance in everything. Right. But what is the downside from the farmer's perspective or the lobbyist perspective from the agriculture side? I, I've yet to understand what that downside is, other than they worry that that because, as you know, they in a lot of the West they can graze their sheep or their cattle public on public land, whether yeah. it's Bureau of Land Management. So they, so they or potentially will lose grazing rights in certain that, areas that they've had for years and years and years. That's their worry. Okay. Now. Even though the agency, I mean, if you went and looked at the Montana sheep reintroduction checklist, you have to go to every landowner within some obscure distance of the proposed area, and not just where you're going to release them, but where they may migrate to, sign off, and get their approval. Yeah, hmm. it's like That's unbelievable. Yeah, so if you got one person there who's pissed off at the agency, no sheep. Interesting. And so they're just dying, and we're not being able to replace them. It, well, so. it's a shame. Yeah, I think uh, but, it's a shame because I, I definitely think there's a balance. You have to be able to support the sheep farmers, but but clearly if there's a whole species dying off, something needs to change. Right. Well, and, and, and sometimes, you know, we just need to trust the agency that we pay to do their job. You would think and, so. And, and listen to the biologists that spend their lives on this is we just poke our heads in every once in a while <laughs> and get sound bites. It, it, yeah. it frustrates me to hear stories like that. Um, I, I grew up in Oregon and, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, growing up along the way, like a, a big debate was the, the, the taking the bear and cougar bill that, you know, you can't, you no longer hunt bears with, and cats with dogs and just all these different things that came through when I was growing up. And you'd have the biologists over here yelling and screaming like, this is, look, these are the facts and this is what we should do. This is what I get paid to tell you. And no one listens. Right. They just, they sit, whether it's in Washington, D.C. or whatever the state capital is, and they go, no, I don't think that's right. Right. No, I'm not going to let that one go. And <laughs> so why, why, why do we, why do we, why don't we trust our biologists? And, and the agencies that are I feel like the, the agencies, the biologists, they get it from both sides these days. Like right. not only do the people above them not listen to them, but at the time you talk to dudes like, you know, in oh, our yeah. community. Oh, they and they got a like, hard job. Yeah, damn the DNR, damn this, damn that. They don't yeah. know how to, you know. That's true. That's and a it's good like, point. It's like, dude, they're all scientists. They all went to four, at least four years of school to study this stuff, and now you're going to tell them that because you didn't kill an elk this year that you know, they're doing their job wrong. <laughs> yeah. you know? And they're really getting it from both point. angles. They do get yeah. beat up you're, pretty you're good. You're right, yeah. Giannis. That, that is exactly correct. And one of the things I've seen in my, let's see, I'm 50, so I've been hunting for 38 years, and I've been involved in hunting politics for probably 25 years. If there's one big thing that has happened in the last 10 to 15 years, it's that people have figured out, when I say people, I'm talking about private interest groups, that we as hunters are not good at advocating our own issue in the world of politics. So we used to operate in this wonderful area of let's leave it to the biologists who will report to the commission. The commissions will set the rules. The interest groups have said, we don't like that. We're going to bring this over to politics. Because these hunters are no good at politics. They're disinterested in it. All their advocacy groups, like you know, our conservation groups, are set up as 501c3 groups so they can only spend a fraction of their money on actual political activities. So they've grabbed our issue, and they're just having a free-for-all with it. And so that's why in Montana, and I, I read all across the West similar things, 
We have over a hundred bills in a legislative session that have to do with hunting. Since when was the hunting that bad in Montana that we need to change a hundred different laws? Hmm. Interesting. And that trend is not flattening out. It's accelerating. And it's not just accelerating in Montana. It's accelerating all the states I travel to, all the hunters I talk to. And for me, when people ask, what do I see as the biggest challenge for hunters in the future? Yeah, it's going to be access. Yeah, it's going to be a bunch of things. But really what the challenge is going to be is how do we gain control and get those issues back over to where we like to play? Or how do we school ourselves up, gear ourselves up, and get our butts in the other game called politics? As much as we hate it, that's where the game's being played. And you can't score a touchdown if you're not on the field. I think you may have just answered a question that I saw on here that was really interesting on your forum about as hunters internally, collectively as a group. The question was something about what, what, what can we do better as a group or how are we, you know, what are we doing that's not right, shooting ourselves in the foot to protect our hunting heritage and to protect our conservation rights. And, yeah. and it sounds like politics is high on your list. It, it is. And, you know, everyone who follows me, reads my stuff, knows that, that's a big part of what I do. I'm an equal opportunity abuser, and I'm an equal opportunity supporter in the world of politics. Even though I'm right of center, if you measured me on the political spectrum, I will go and kick the teeth, political teeth out of a Republican as much as I will a Democrat. I, I don't really care because I am of the party of hunting and fishing and access. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. And any hunter who says I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat, you're setting yourself up for failure for your issues. Because at least probably half the time, the other side's going to be controlling your issues. So you're saying, well, I'll bat. I'm, I'm happy to only win half the time or less. No. I, and that's how we got here. We, we never let hunting and conservation or, or any of that become a Republican or Democratic issue. It's always been an issue of the people. And you look at all the great legislation that has helped hunting and fishing, either within states or in Congress, always been bipartisan. Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson, all, all of that stuff was bipartisan. It's only recently that people have tried to make conservation and habitat and access a political topic. And it just, it pisses me off when hunters fall for the bait. We're smarter than that. We're, we're above that. So back to the point, Jeff, of, you know, where could hunters do better? Right. Don't take the spoon feeding from one side or the other. Do your own thinking. Think about it from the perspective of you plus your hunting peers. Because the false paradigm that, oh, I, got, I can be good at guns, but i got to be bad on conservation, or I, I'll be good on conservation, but I'm going to come and take your guns. You don't have to be. It's not an either-or. Right. You can be both. There are examples out there of how some of these politicians are good at both. <laughs> so why do we as hunters let them off the hook to say, well, yeah, I know I sold off your public lands, but at least I didn't come and get your guns. Well, <laughs> well I appreciate you <laughs> keeping my guns in my safe, but why did you sell my public land? Right. Or, you know, whatever the topic might be. So here's, here's a and winger that, for you. This is me off. As a TV personality. Yeah. How's the hunting media and, and the world of, uh, you know, what this has evolved into fit into that and telling that story and 
and the perspectives from non-hunters and what it does and where do you feel all that ties together well, that's pretty open-ended. I could get kicked off the network. If I, if, I would, if I would have answered your question when you first started, the network would have fired me tomorrow. I know you can probably get a little heated up on that conversation, too. Well, and I don't, I don't want to get fired. I, 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 no, I don't I, think it's the network's fault, necessarily. You're going to no, have to I, quit TV when you run for president anyway. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but the point I was going to make, Jeff, is and we in the, the hunting media world, and I don't care if it's print, radio, TV, right. We get a hell of a lot more out of hunting than what we're putting back. And that's just plain out fact. There's no other way to state that. Why do you not see TV guys in the legislature promoting the cause of hunters? Why don't you see TV guys? Why don't you see popular writers blogging a column to say, you know what, someone's trying to steal these public lands in the West, and that is not good for hunting? No. Most of them sit on their ass and do nothing, and it pisses me off. Yeah. Okay, now this is your podcast. You can say that. Yeah, I know. Well, say and, I, you want. And, I, and I was careful to say most. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying all, but there are guys out there who. Oh yeah, you guys. Know I would that. argue that that, that a, a lot of hunters. I mean, besides the TV crowd, like. I, I'm guilty of it. I, I, I bitch about a lot of things that I may may or may not actually take initiative and go out and do something about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that there's data to, su- to support just that. Unfortunately, I mean, you look at all the memberships of all the conservation groups collectively and then the number of hunting licenses sold a year, and it's it's a fraction of a percentage of hunters that are actually – you know, financially committed enough to become a member yeah. of the Elk Foundation or Ducks Unlimited, yeah. just enough, and that and that's just barely minimally, you know, becoming involved. All you have to do is buy a membership. You don't have to do anything. So, right. so yeah. how many? How how come more people aren't members? How come more people aren't taking the next step after a membership and and becoming engaged to the local chapter? It's because or they're anybody. all mowing their lawns and they're fixing. <laughs> they have too many, yeah, you're maybe right. They have too many too many I, yard I, tools. I, you know, I think I, a lot of us take it for granted. I think a lot of us really. are spoiled. Um, huh. and that's interesting and to hear you guys say that is my blood pressure just went down like a hundred notches yeah. no I really do <laughs> because now just in hearing Jeff say that it dawns on me that maybe it's not just the media world that is that way it's just that we the as the media world are reflective of the community we represent yeah, I think we might, and might therefore right. we're going to have the same participation rate in politics and advocacy which is scary that just made my blood pressure go up <laughs> that the media world it's, it's not their fault they're just they're just producing what we want to see <laughs> yeah well i no one's ever going to accuse randy of not speaking when he feels like it's time to speak and sometimes <laughs> i should probably throttle that down a little bit, but oh well. Should have a podcast. Though. Yeah, that's why this podcast is <laughs> probably not a good idea. It's subtitled <laughs> "Randy Newberg Unfiltered," and you guys, David and Jeff, were looking at me like, "Oh, oh, this guy's about ready to blow." He's on gonna here. explode. <laughs> so, but, so on, on that thought, I think I think we're getting close. Sometimes, what's your last thought? You want to leave people on that that your well, your heart, well, your blood pressure is up high. Let's get it going again. I enjoy What's your that. political yeah. statement you want to leave people with? We have at least 10 minutes. No. If you want to get mad again, go for yeah. it. No. Yeah. Give, us, give us your State of the Union 10 minutes. and then <laughs> well, under, the, under the Randy Newberg administration. Uh, no. I, I don't What's, know. I just, I think, and I'm older than all you guys by 15 years, probably, at least. Uh, how old are you guys? 31. 31. 
34? 34. So I'm 50. And you reach a point in your life, and I've noticed this in the last 10 years, where I don't really give a damn if I ever kill another animal. I really don't. I, you know, I, if I never kill another elk, I've shot more than my share. What I'm worried about is I was handed, my generation, we were handed something by my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, their generation. And we could blow it. And, and by that, I mean the whole hunting legacy, the conservation legacy, the entire conservation ethic that the United States has that distinguishes us from every other country. We could lose that if, if we aren't careful, if we just take it for granted. And back 10, 15 years ago, I was too busy hunting and doing all that stuff to really understand the risk or worry about it. And maybe now I have too much time and I worry about it too much. But if I go to my grave and we've lost these amazing public lands of this country, or we've lost our gun ownership rights, or we've lost hunting opportunities for that next generation, then I've failed. My generation has failed. So what? In, so on that thought, what is the number one thing that all of us as listeners can start doing today that will will help impact that or? And this sounds like ninth grade civics, Jeff, and I don't mean it to be that way, but it really is that way. You need to get involved. It, it's, it might just be an email. It might be the next time some politician's banging on your door for a primary vote, give them an earful about hunting and fishing and access. Go form a little rod and gun club in your town. Even if it's only five of you who are active, but you got a hundred other members who just want to be on an email list, that scares the hell out of politicians. And I don't like to keep focusing on politics because it's, it's ugly and messy, but that's where the game's that's being played. That's where the played. fight is. And in, uh, if hunters don't realize that, <laughs> we're going to be... Well, what's the best resource for, for us to, like, one of the things I think we came to is we're all a little bit naive, we're, or not all, but you know, a lot of us are sort of a little spoiled and maybe not comfortable to state our opinions. Because we're not, you know... Not everybody's as educated as Randy Newberg is on the, on, you know, hasn't been doing it for 25 years. So, like, what resource should we use to stay educated so when that, when that fight does come to our door and we go, wait a minute, aren't you the guy that tried to, you know, yeah. sell off public lands and blah, 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 blah. And, right. you know, what I've found is the really savvy politicians, I mean, the, it's kind of the nature of the beast, is they can, if you're not, if I'm, you don't have your ammo, yeah. then the, you, you might as well it. not even waste your time. Right. Yeah. And what's that source? I mean, a lot of the, conservation groups are doing a good job of getting information out there but they can't lobby so they're kind of hoping their members will consume that information and say hey that applies to me i'm going to contact somebody i mean this is a shameless plug but there is no hunting forum no website out there that tackles politics like hunt talk i would put the hunt talk forum crew in a debate if, if we had a de- speech and debate team in the hunting world I'm going to go and pick about four or five guys off Hunt Talk, and we're going to kick ass and take names. There's going to be blood in the streets when those guys are done with them. There's a reason no politicians come out to that forum and participate. They all lurk. I mean, from D.C. to state capitals, they're all lurking out on Hunt Talk to see what's going on. But it's places like that, David, where you just it takes a while to find the information and then actually giving yourself or, or allowing yourself the time 
to go and do your own thinking about it because I've I've many times been victim of trusting somebody and they spoon fed me something that afterwards I'm like, wait a second here. You only drink someone's Kool-Aid a time or two that's bad Kool-Aid before you say, I think I'm going to mix my own Kool-Aid here. (laughs) And so I, I, and I completely understand the time it takes and why it just, it's hard for people. I understand the lack of interest. I understand all of that. And maybe I shouldn't be as frustrated, but for people who are my age and in my position, the, there's very few excuses to not be involved. You guys your age, you're raising families, you got all the work, you got so many demands on you. I can, I get that. But if you're 50 years or older and you're like me or your job and your profession is being in the hunting world, there's no excuse other than I didn't want to. You raise a really good point though, because there's, there is, it is not an, I mean, it's not easy to know where to go to, to learn or get involved. And I think maybe that's, uh, that's identifying something that'd be really important to yeah. create well, is, is like a place there you could seek. I mean, it's just like if you, like you have, you know, we've all had like a red bump on our arm or something. You, you, you can Google just about whatever, whatever you want it to be. You can Google it and find out. You're a WebMD, aren't you? Yeah, see. <laughs> so my point is, like, I mean, if I wanted to go get an opinion on, you know, reintroduction of wolves, I could ask five different people and get five different sets of information. If I'm uneducated, I don't know what, what's right and what's wrong, right? Yeah. And even if I am educated, if I'm not, you know, confident in my opinion, I still might not know what's right or wrong because I might have been fed bad data. So it's like that's that's where the question came from. Is I, I right. struggle with that sometimes because I'm so close to it. Sometimes I, I want to read a couple like very uh, different opinions just to form my own opinion. I've been really intrigued lately with, uh, and I, I guess I should have been more. I feel like I should have been more familiar earlier, but with the USSA, it's been an interesting organization for me to learn more about. Uh, that's the U.S. Sportsman's Alliance. That's Randy's ringtone. Just Randy's so everybody knows. Phone call. Sorry about Randy, that. Hundred dollars. First rule to podcast. Turn I know. Off your phone. But anyway, the, the USA has been intriguing to me, and I don't know a whole lot about them, but it's been interesting to follow them as they are. There's lots of conservation groups that are species specific, right? So you can mm-hmm. find lots of stuff about elk from the Elk Foundation, lots of stuff about sheep from the Sheep Foundation, and it's intriguing to me that they are more focused not on a species but about our hunting heritage and, and protecting that uh, that alone as a broader spectrum thing. And that's been an interesting resource for Say me. Say the name learn. of it again. Yeah. USSA. You familiar with them, Randy? Yeah. United, you probably know a lot more United about them United States Sportsman's Alliance. Yeah. Yeah, they get very involved in politics. Yeah, they do seem like yeah. they're more involved in politics, and, yeah. and it's not focused on, on one species or habitat, but it's more spoke, focused on hunting heritage and hunters' rights as a collective group. And, and that's been uh, – I've been intrigued learning more about them more recently. Yeah. So we're just about going to wrap up. So – one of my camera guys said, Randy, you can't do a podcast without giving some marital advice. It's- <laughs> I think we already got some of that. <laughs> well, so <clears throat> I'm trying to lay the context here. So I'm driving across the country all fall with one or two of these 20-some-year-old camera guys in the truck with me. Or I'm sitting on the mountain with them every day, glassing. And, you know, in the downtimes, you're talking about things. And these guys are all in that age where, oh, man, I'm getting married. And <laughs> when I get married, boy, I'm going to wear the pants. <laughs> Instantly, you start laughing. You know? So the, the, it's kind of been this succession of as a new camera guy comes in, the existing camera guy's like, hey, you need to talk to this guy. He's got some supposed marital advice and <laughs> so the the one guy he's like I, I asked him i said well what are you talking about he said well i want 
the best piece of marital advice, marital advice I think he ever gave me is this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you've only been married a little over a year. How do you know it's good marital advice? Well, we don't fight nearly as much as we used to, he said, so I can see that it's going to get better. So, and, and what it was is I told him, you know, about the third year of my marriage, I decided I was more interested in peace than I was justice. <laughs> And if you want to hunt a lot and you want to fish a lot, you need to be interested in peace, not justice. <laughs> you can be right really in your mind, advice. but you don't have to tell your wife and try to prove her, to her that, she's, that you're right. Being right is expensive. <laughs> I don't know I any other way advice. to put it. So for all you guys out there listening, you don't need to be right. And if you want to hunt, Five weeks next year instead of one, we want peace, not justice. <laughs> I, I, as, think, I think from six years of marriage, this isn't quite as much as you. I can already see that that's a very true statement. <laughs> hey, I, I got 26 years of, of history supporting that theory. So, <laughs> you know, uh, my wife might start listening to these podcasts, and I might not make it to 27, but for right now, we're going with that. Right? <laughs> But I, I think we're going to wrap it up, folks. I appreciate Jeff Spazito, David Brinker, from both from Sitka Gear, Giannis and Dan from 0.0. And, uh, you know, part of this is our Hunt Talk Forum. Go out there. You're going to see a lot of stuff related to the podcast out on the forum. Uh, our TV show starts airing July 1st this year, Wednesday nights, 9.30 Mountain Time. Um, you're going to see us there. And if you don't get a TV package, which I hope you do, go to Sportsman Channel and sign up and get that. But if for some reason you don't, you can download all of our content, our, our current episodes, our old episodes, even the old show we used to do on your own adventures. You can download it to your tablet, to your iPhone, to your Droid, whatever. The place you go to do that is randynewberg.com. And you're going to find a little button there that says download. Even a, a Luddite like Randy can click on that button and actually download it. So go to randynewberg.com. You're going to find everything you ever wanted to know about what we got going on and probably some things you didn't want to know. So Jeff, David, Giannis, Dan. I just want to toss in there that for people who want a place to go to learn about conservation, learn about hunting, learn about this stuff, Go download all 85 or 90 episodes of Randy's TV show and watch them be good at that. <laughs> You'll learn a sure. lot. Good point. Uh, good point. And Dan didn't get paid for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> kind, kind of I did. Yeah. Well, okay. thanks, thanks, everyone. Thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah.